Thank you, Annie. I would, would have looked up that passage if I had known. <laughs> I mean, your talk on that passage. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. Good to be back after the holiday break. And to those online, welcome back. Um, and Happy New Year. I know Annie said it too, but Happy New Year. And I know we're all praying and hoping for this year coming up. So, the last time we met, we were in chapter 6, and Shaley spoke on the miracles of Jesus. Here in Mark 7, 1 through 23, we see a break in Mark's gospel from the miracles of Jesus, and we are introduced to the topic of cleanness and defilement in regards to a measure of faith or holiness. Now, it might not sound like it's pertinent to us, but... Scripture always is. Commentator Mark Strauss notes, Mark probably introduces Jesus' teaching on clean and unclean things in order to prepare for the episodes that follow, where Jesus will travel into Gentile territory and interact with unclean Gentiles. So let's consider this part of chapter 7 as an interlude of teaching that Jesus deemed important for those of his day and for us today as well. First, we'll see the controversy introduced by the Pharisees. Then Jesus' response, followed by his teaching at the end of the passage. As we begin, we read of another appearance by the esteemed Pharisees. This could have taken place at any time in the course of Jesus' ministry. There appears no chronological connection to the passages prior. The Pharisees appear throughout Mark's gospel attempting to attack Jesus on various practices they held for moral holiness, which they observed Jesus not following. We know this isn't an isolated incident with the Pharisees and Jesus. We saw early on in our study, in chapters 2 and 3, how the Pharisees questioned Jesus regarding eating with sinners and laws of the Sabbath. Another commentator, James Edwards, defines this long section on debate and controversy as the longest conflict speech in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Why is cleanness and uncleanness important? What is God saying to us? We'll look at how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and disciples and how it applies to us today. Let's look at the controversy. The chapter opens with the Pharisees confronting Jesus for the first time on the subject of purity or uncleanness, ritual purity. They asked Jesus why the disciples were not obeying the unwritten laws regarding hand washing. They were looking at Jesus as a rabbi and teacher, and therefore his disciples were under his authority, and he was responsible for their actions. Uncleanness here was not considered in the hygiene sense, but in the purity sense. That is, purity from defilement that came from touching any form of dirt, disease, decay, and human excrements, including saliva and blood. They covered everything. In Judaism, defilement came to mean anything that was ritually unclean and unworthy in God's presence. Tim Keller explains 
the general gist of this passage is that clean laws still teach something important. And that is that sin does the same thing to the soul as dirt and disease defiles the body. He goes on to say our method of washing or cleansing our defilement show up in ways such as perfectionism and appearance. And we can add other things such as how we raise our children, how we teach our children, how we worship, how we follow the current trends or not, doing good deeds, and being rigid about all of the above and judging others by how they fit into our way of doing things. Then we feel good about ourselves because we're following our own rules that correlates to our worthiness. Do you find it easy, like I do, to look at others and judge their way of doing whatever it is by your standards? It can become subtle over time that it becomes part of us and we don't recognize it as our attempt to clean ourselves up. But if we ask, God will show us these areas, which is why I love Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. The Pharisees were diligent about keeping the law of God as stated in the Old Testament books, such as Exodus and Leviticus. There it stated only the priests were required to wash before entering the tabernacle. But as time went on, the Pharisees and scribes took it upon themselves to include everyone in ritual hand-washing, not just the priests. But it was also a convenient way of maintaining Jewish purity over the undesirable Gentile culture and eventually spread to other cultures, such as lepers, Samaritans, and tax collectors. We can see how the Pharisees had an issue with Jesus and his disciples since they were the ones who were ministering alongside and touching those same people for whom rules of uncleanness applied. Now we know the Pharisees and scribes were a proud and prestigious group considered by others and themselves as experts in the law and were accustomed to others looking up to them. They were legalist, self-righteous, phony, and looking for ways to trap, accuse, and discredit Jesus. It wasn't about the law of God. It was about their own oral traditions added on to God's laws. It was this adding on that Tim Keller says, what started out as something good ended up as something bad. You see, in an effort to protect and preserve the law of God, which is a good thing, oral tradition evolved and became the tradition of the elders, the forefathers, generations of rabbis who created detailed rituals, rules, and regulations to protect the law of God. This was the good thing turned bad. These all became binding and authoritative traditions compiled in the Mishnah, which is the collection of oral tradition of Jewish law. So here's an example of how this obsession of adding on grew. It's been noted there are 30, 30 chapters on rituals of washing pots and pans. 
and volumes on topics such as ceremonial hand-washing. Can you imagine living under such harsh and complicated requirements and how it would detract you from God, the one the law was meant to honor? According to Edwards, the Mishnah called this oral interpretation a fence around the Torah, meaning they were attempting to preserve every conceivable aspect of God's laws by taking it upon themselves to explain how to fulfill the commands that God decreed. The audacity of the Pharisees, by trying to uphold the Torah, God's laws, they were presenting a distraction for others to the intent of God's word. This is why Jesus had such strong and serious words in his condemnation of the Pharisees in verse 6. The scathing indictment calling them out as hypocrites. Jesus' response is a common one we see in his earthly ministry. He quotes scripture. Here, Isaiah 29, 13. It says, These people worship me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is based on nothing but human rules. That verse is important as we'll see the term heart again and again, showing its importance to God. And keep in mind, many authors have observed when Jesus refers to the heart, he is talking about the inner person, every aspect of our being. God desires to be worshipped from the heart. Remember Jesus' answer to which is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, your inner self, your whole self. We read and obey the Bible to have a personal relationship with God, to give our hearts to God. It isn't about trying to be morally righteous by external actions, which others will notice and hold us in high honor. This is the whole idea behind the word hypocrite. I read that in the ancient Greek language, hypocrite referred to an actor or someone who wears a mask. What is seen on the outside is more important than what's inside. It's all about the image they promote. It's more important to them than what they actually are. And that is why Tim Keller says, we have no reason to look down our noses on the Pharisees, for we are more like them than we care to admit. Let's ask ourselves honestly, is the image we promote more important than what we actually are? Would God say the following about his people? Would he say it about us and the church today? Hear how one author puts it for us to consider. They attend church, but their heart is far from me. They read their Bible, but their heart is far from me. They pray eloquently, but their heart is far from me. They contribute money, but their heart is far from me. They do ministry, they worship, but their heart is far from me. Oh, no, Mike. 
I pray, sisters, we can all examine our hearts, minds, and souls, and draw near to God. It's he who desires our full devotion, so that as we attend church, read the Bible, pray, do ministry, and the rest, we do it with the joy of knowing the one we serve is the one who loves us more than our appearances of good deeds and accomplishments. Now next we see Jesus' response to the main controversy in verse 8 and 9. He says, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. It's interesting to note the word experts is used in a derogatory slash complimentary sort of way. Jesus calls upon their pride in their knowledge of the law but points out their expertise is in the wrong place. Jesus does not even address the Pharisees' issue of ritual purity, but instead attacks the source of their authority. God's word, not human tradition, is the basis for authentic worship. In verse 9, Jesus seems to play on the Pharisees' pride and presumed expertise when he tells the Pharisees they are skillful, or clever in how they ignore God's commands. He gives a powerful example of how the Pharisees reject the commands of God and follow their own teachings. This example is proof of their corruption, as Jesus again quotes scripture. Exodus twenty twelve, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, which Strauss notes was among the greatest of values in biblical times, caring for and respecting parents. Jesus then states how the Pharisees and scribes nullified or invalidated this commandment. He used the example of korban, which means devoted to God as a gift, and is found in Leviticus 27:28. The word describes something to be offered to God or given to the sacred treasury in the temple. If something was korban, it was dedicated and set apart for God's use. Jesus was highlighting the selfish motives used behind this tradition because they are contrary to the heart of God and the true intent of the law. It would be like today's concept of deferred giving. A person may will a property to a charity or institution at his or her death, but still retains possession over the property, as well as proceeds from it until the time of death. But, in contrast, the korban practice meant vowing property and finance to the temple, a vow so sacred that it could not be revoked, even in order to care for your parents in old age. Basically, a son could say to his parents, All my possessions and savings are korban, dedicated to God, which sounds like a good thing, but unavailable to you. Sorry. One commentator calls it a pious fraud, which invalidated the will of God as expressed in the fifth commandment. Jesus is very blunt when he calls it hypocrisy. The Pharisees turn this practice into an atrocious assault on the moral commandment of honoring parents, looking righteous under the guise of a cover-up. 
Jesus' accusations reveal the rabbis were actually endorsing this practice. He says this in verse 12 and 13. I'm going to read it and emphasize you in here. As he's speaking to them, he says, You no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. It was a human tradition tradition clashing with the word of God. Verse 13 is a serious charge, rejecting what God said. As Sinclair Ferguson said, the Pharisees played a public role of being devoted to God, when in fact their attitudes and actions demonstrated that they really did not know God at all. This can be a sobering reminder for us to examine our attitude and actions and their implications to our faith. We'll talk about that more soon. These Pharisees were far from worshiping God in the way he desires. Their worship was vain, purposeless, and hypocritical, and not accepted by God. The reason why the charge of being hypocrites was so denigrating to the Pharisees was it indicated they were acting a role without sincerity when they thought they were so moral and upstanding in the faith. As we move into Jesus' teaching in verses 14 and 23, we see in the midst of the Pharisees, Jesus turns to the crowds and calls the people to himself and says, Listen to me and understand. Edwards notes this is a solemn announcement, emphasizing faith and understanding come from hearing. Jesus reverses what the Pharisees knew from the Old Testament teaching on clean laws, addressing what was said in verse 2 earlier. It is not eating defiled food that contaminates one, but it is inner impurities that defile outside. That is, ungodly thoughts and actions that come from an evil and hard heart. Inner purity, not external ceremony, is what matters. That is the message of Jesus. His words are spiritually revolutionary to the Pharisees. Religiously, they are shocking. The real issues of religious and spiritual faith are internal, not external. The Pharisees were not accustomed to hearing this focus on the inside, the heart. They were all about the outward appearances. This is what made them holy in their eyes. J.C. Ryle points out, Jesus' teaching is indicative of the radical transformation coming with the arrival of the kingdom of God, which angered these men, the Pharisees, who were hearing the end of their religiosity. So Jesus is trying to make them understand the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament regarding clean and unclean were meant to make people aware of God's holiness and the reality of sin as a barrier to fellowship with God. But they have now fulfilled their purpose and are no longer required. As Jesus says in Matthew 5:17, "Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill." 
This called into question everything the Pharisees stood for. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, to follow Jesus for a Pharisee would have meant a completely new view of God and a completely new attitude to themselves. So would their pride allow them to make this change? Or we can ask ourselves, what is pride keeping you and me from changing about our view of God or a stubborn attitude we hold on to? How hard is Jesus knocking on your heart, on my heart? What follows in verse 17 is a private session with the disciples and with us to further explain this important spiritual lesson. Jesus asks his disciples, are you so lacking in understanding? He might be thinking, you also don't get it. One commentator remarked his own chosen pupils were still under the spell of the Pharisaic theological tradition, meaning they had been trained in Judaism, which the distinction in which the distinction between clean and unclean is ingrained, and therefore they could not understand a statement abolishing it. But Jesus is patient and takes time to explain to them more than to the Pharisees. Jesus clarifies for his disciples in verse 18 and 19, saying, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. Holiness is not a matter of externals, but of the heart. Again, let us remember heart is inclusive for our minds, which can include thoughts, beliefs, judgments. Our affections includes feelings, emotions, desires, and our will, how we determine actions. Jesus explains it is what comes out of our hearts that makes us unclean, not what goes in. Sin begins in the heart, where we can superimpose those other things, Sin begins in our thoughts, in our beliefs, in our judgments, emotions that are wrong or desires that are wrong. Sin remains in the heart and then produces all matter of defilement and death. Sisters, just like the dirt and grime probably lining the pipes hidden in our homes, the real impurity or defilement is inside each of us and unseen, but it is there, and eventually it will show itself, as verse 21 and 23 make clear, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then the whole list follows, just to name a few, theft, greed, malice, jealousy, slander, pride, you can read it yourself because many verse, many um, translations are different, and it's just interesting to see that list. And we can easily forget the big sins, but then the attitudes are the ones that really hit home. And it is, it's all these evils that come from inside and defile a person. A list like this isn't even exhaustive but it shows that Jesus knows what we struggle with 
and what we need to do about it. It's a combination of attitudes and actions. One flows from the other and keeps us distant from God. As I mentioned earlier, we learn from God's word that Jesus desires a personal relationship, giving our heart to him in obedience, love, and gratitude. But what does this really mean? What is giving our heart as opposed to following a list of do's and don'ts? When Jesus spoke of the heart, he was talking of the inner person. So when we give our hearts to Jesus, we surrender our whole being everything that comprises our thoughts and actions. Interestingly, the first item from the list, beginning in verse 21, is evil thoughts. Where do the rest of the evil things in that list begin? Jesus knows it's our minds, our thought life. For us today, the most deadly contamination is not what we touch. The most deadly contamination is what we think. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Defilement has its root on the inside. In her book, Idols of the Heart, Elise Fitzpatrick says this, we, can, we cannot accomplish heart change on our own. We need God's power to teach, incline, and direct our hearts to him. It's not a natural thing for us to do. There are many verses in scripture that speak to the deceitfulness of our hearts. They show us that God knows us well. We can try to hide our sin from others, but who knows our heart better than the one who made us? It's been said the heart is truly an idle factory. And this truth should concern us all. It's hard to admit, but every human heart has the possibility of every root of sin. Jeremiah 17.9 speaks about our heart disease. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Are we surprised when we sin? Do we cringe at the possibility or deny the existence of those evil things? In verse 21 and 22, how humble we ought to be when we read these verses. We are all as an unclean thing in God's sight. And as Isaiah 64 states, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It reminds me of the repeated line of Jack Miller, New Life's founder, defining himself as a recovering Pharisee. I think all honest, true Christians can echo that. Again, J.C. Ryle states, All of us have by nature such a heart as Jesus here describes. The seeds of all the evils lie hid within us. He goes on to say they may lie dormant all our lives. They may be kept down by fear of consequences, the restraint of public opinion, the dread of discovery, the desire to be thought respectable, and above all, by the almighty grace of God. Sisters, I know I have this possibility in my heart. I thank God for sending the Holy Spirit, his spirit, 
and allowing me time to learn to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I am thankful for the convictions of thoughts or doubts that could easily lead to wrong actions. And when I fail, he is faithful to forgive. Sin isn't a very popular term to use these days. If you're anything like me, you tend to use other acceptable terms like offended, provoked, irritated, behaved poorly, or we blame shift, make excuses. You know how it goes. We may say, if only that person reacted differently the way I think they should, or, you know, I can't help the way I am, it's because of my parents, or I wouldn't get so angry if that person didn't do or say such annoying things. We don't need to look at others or ident- to identify or judge sin patterns. All we need to do is look at our own heart. As 1 Samuel 16:7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When the Lord examines our hearts, what does he see? A self-righteous legalist trusting in what we do? Or a humble sinner trusting only what Jesus has done. The difference is, is of eternal significance. How thankful we ought to be for the gospel. That gospel contains a complete provision for all of our sinful natures. The blood of Christ can cleanse us from all sin. It's so interesting how the language of washing away our sin is used for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross just as the Pharisees tried to wash away impurities to gain God's approval. The Holy Spirit can change even our sinful hearts and keep them clean when changed. The person that does not glory in the gospel can surely know little of the evil that lies within. The good news is we don't have to live with defilement of the heart. We can have full fellowship with God through the atoning death of Jesus. I'll close with Hebrews 9.14 from the message. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives, inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reminders in your word of how you care for us, your children. You know all about each one of us, the things we let others see, the things we hide from others. You provide a way for us to have closeness with you without our attempts at making ourselves look good or do good things to win your approval. Lord, help us to have hearts that yearn for you and hearts and minds that are cleansed by your death sacrifice for us so that we live devoted to you and desire your purpose and your will for our lives. I pray for all of us, Father, for a renewed awareness of your love for us. Help us as we're challenged by your word 
to seek changed hearts where needed. In your holy, precious name we pray. Amen.